Thank you for that girl. The podcast project of the finalist. By Leopold Lambert. Today, eminent domain versus eminent domain. The law and its spatial practices with Lucy Finchett Meadow. Today, my guest is uh, Lucy Finchett Maddock, who is a, a, a legal theorist and a lecturer in law at the University of Sussex. Uh, Lucy and I have been uh, working together on a, on a few uh, common texts and uh, an epistolary exchange uh, that you can find in the Phenobilis pamphlets about legal theories, a volume four. Uh, she has an upcoming book called Protest, Property in the Commons, Performances of Law and Resistance uh, social justice um, and today we're going to talk about uh, well probably pretty much what your <laughs> your book uh, is uh, entitled Lucy uh, good morning good morning hi uh, <laughs> hi um, so maybe just to to warm up the conversation can you could you just tell us a little bit um, what you feel of research involves at, at the at this moment yeah, at the moment I'm actually rewriting my doctoral thesis, so uh, that's for publication, which is the book that you just mentioned, and it's the Social Justice Book Series, so that's the, the Routledge Book Series, um, which involves kind of going back into uh, the thesis and, and kind of reworking it, which is kind of tough, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, no, it's enjoyable as well, so, um, which looked at uh, social centres, which are who radical political radically political um, they can either be squatted or rented or however uh, um, spaces that are in um, cities um, yeah so I look at those uh, they're like community centers I suppose um, yeah so I looked at those for my um, my thesis and I had a, th a theory I guess um, that they created their own form of law um, using legal pluralist understandings of non-state law, um, but then also using sort of quite law and space or legal geographies understandings of um, performative or enacting space, um, and so that was written actually before the the Occupy movement and the whole year of the protester. So uh, what I'm doing now is obviously going through all the literature that's been written since then, and then trying to update that in terms of. The, the previous theory that I that I looked at, and then trying to apply that to a the way in which the the law has has dealt with occupation protests, I suppose, um, which has become a way of describing it, um, and also the way in which the resistance has or how the theory can be applied to the resistance that we've seen mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Um, Maybe we can start this conversation by um, by talking a little bit of this uh, epistolary exchange we we've been having you and me, mm -hmm. um, in which, uh, well, I I wrote the first letter which was rather uh, general general let's say but maybe looking at the relationship between the law and um, and architecture and how how they both um, they both are part of the two aspects of the same mechanisms of power. Yeah. Um, 
one uh, one uh, expl expliciting and materializing the other uh, let's say but uh, without without making too much uh, without making uh, too big of a dichotomy between between those two because again they they're they're very much entangled within each other mm -hmm. but but then uh, something interesting happened because you just came back from India back then from Megalore and uh, w our conversation started to be a little bit more um, uh, applied to a specific case of India um, I lived in Mumbai myself for a little bit so we were having this conversation about uh, uh, well almost this play on words but uh, eminent domain mm. and immanent domain uh, yeah. eminent domain being those uh, territories claimed by uh, developers and uh, uh uh, I should say state backed state, state backed yeah. developers um, that uh, that reclaim a tremendous amount of uh, amount of land to build um, to build uh, to build the conditions in which the new uh, the new wealth uh, in India and the new social class that emerged from it uh, mm -hmm. should live, mm -hmm. and the Iman and domain, which uh, would be the informal settlements that have been have been also claiming land for their own uh, for their own um, uh, survival yeah. uh, in 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 those cities. So maybe could you could you tell us a little bit more uh, along along those lines? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess the inspiration because. I had just been away to, to India, hadn't I? And, um, and I really liked your... That was great, the, the imminent domain. I mean, that describes it really well, doesn't it? Um, and cleverly. Because it was quite clear to me when I was in the city that it was um, the whole... I mean, like, yeah, I think we were talking about planning and unplanning because mm -hmm. it was just quite clearly, like, no planning really at all going on. And you could see that there had been... The city was growing as you, as you, you know, as you walked through the city. You could see that it was a living organism, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But then there were elements or structures that were like huge pillars for flyovers that had been there in construction for about ten years, which had never been completed. So, um, and that was obviously in the name of the, the you know, the up and coming Indian bourgeoisie who would be working in, in the centre. Um, yeah, and it was quite clear, or it was quite clear, as you say, like the the, the slums um, that were moved away uh, from those um, structures that were being built. And I suppose while I was there, I also visited the um, National Institute of Advanced Studies as well, and they had mentioned how there had been an original mapping of the city. Um, and it's quite interesting how that map, very different from the map that actually exists in reality. So, the the sort of the this legal cartography um, of how the city should be, um, or how the I suppose those in more more of a position to, to run the city wanted the city to be. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when you look at the city on the ground, it's it's a real mishmash of imminent and eminent domain, isn't it? And, and it's mm -hmm. the two that are trying to, well, um, survive either at the same time or overcome one another, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, but it's very much a, an incomplete process. It's not something that's it's it's not something that 
yeah, it just seemed to me that it was something that would it was never in completion. Mm-hmm. And it was just evolving, or maybe not evolving, but it was in movement, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And to follow a little bit about this um, uh, eminent versus immanent, uh, what ought to be noticed is uh, is the fact that the the eminent domain is very much um, how to call that. Uh, a legal construction and ar- an arrangement of the law uh, that uh, very much actually co- quite quite disturbingly reuse uh, reuse a, a very um, a colonial thinking in the, mm. in the way it's being constructed, mm. which in a in a post-colonial country like India is um, is makes it even more disturbing. But mm. um, there there is. What what I mean by by that is that the it ought to be noted that the eminent domain is very much using lo- the law as a as a political strategy, yeah. whereas the eminent domain is uh, characterized by no longer strategies, but well, but no longer strategy, but strictly speaking, practices. Mm, yeah, it's a practice of the eminent domain, whereas yeah. the eminent domain is a is a is a kind of uh, transcendental. Um, uh, legislative construction. Mm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think there's an interesting tension between between this this idea of of of, uh, of uh, strategy versus practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the the reason, I suppose, why as well the those practices are practices mm-hmm. is the previous strategy that took place before that as well, which would have been the original colonial re, um, reappropriation of, of land as well, so the original use of registration and, and, and the common law. So in actual fact, what you see is on, on top, you see the practices of, of the slums, but actually there is, as a result, again, of the previous imposition that happened before that as well, because that's really the, the, the people themselves trying to, to make... Make sense, or, or to, to live either within or out, well, mainly outside of the system that's been imposed upon them. So, mm. and then you have the the um, you know the flyovers or, or whatever has been claimed, whatever land has been claimed in, in the name of the state for the public interest. Um, who the public, which public they're talking about is a different thing, isn't it? But um, then that will be another strategy, as you say, and another level or layer, I suppose. Of, but it's quite interesting, I suppose, that that practice happens in response to a previous strategy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you say a previous strategy, do you include as well the, the, the British will? or? Uh, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah, you yeah. mean. So okay. like the, the previous imposition of okay. the so common law. Yeah. So Raj. Raj. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, so and so how you know the, the levels of, of legal mm-hmm. plurality that, that that creates. Yeah, and I think that's something quite fascinating in... Uh, what I would call the reminiscence, mm. uh, reminiscences of this uh, of this era, right? Because mm. uh, there, you cannot colonize a country for that long and mm. just leave and leave no tracks of where no. where you were. So yeah. uh, even yeah, at the architectural obvious. level, it's very obvious. Mm. So. Or uh, even within the you know the way in which people talk, and <laughs> it's mm. quite clear. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure in the spirit in which the uh, legislation framework is being made is very much influenced by that. If not, uh, and uh, 
forgive my ignorance here, but uh, I, I would almost say there's probably uh, a lot of laws that were actually already implemented during the during the British rule, and that still exist today, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, with with regards to eminent domain, um, forgive me if I can't remember the exact name of the act. It's been a while since <laughs> I was there. Um, but yeah, I mean they have been re. I think there was one repealed. Um, but yeah, that would that is, it's using the same because the original use of eminent domain was was the it became a state practice. Um, so trying to claim land in the name of the national interest, mm-hmm. so that was very much a, a colonial t- strategy, mm-hmm. and it wasn't one in the name of the, the people who the land was being claimed from, obviously. Yeah. So and. It's the same regime, I suppose, that's being used. But the the sad fact is, is that you know the common law is, is an individualistic, individ, based on individual rights, and, and previous layers of law would have been communal. So it, it, mm. it's a very different process or understanding of law. Mm. I mean, not always, obviously, um, but when you have levels of legal plurality, you're always going to have this. The map isn't going to fit, is it? So that it's there's always going to be somebody who's left outside of the map, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, and uh, oh, I uh, I hope you won't find my transition too artificial here. But uh, I was thinking of those uh, of those slums we were talking about, those uh, practice of immanent uh, domain. Mm. Um, uh, it makes me think of something else that you've been uh, very interested in, and we haven't mentioned so far. It's to look at the the way there can be a reading, an interpretation, a, uh, a legal interpretation of the writings of uh, William Burroughs, uh, and in in, um, in particular the interzone, mm. and uh, how this interzone may be uh, a territory of. Uh, you'll tell me if you want to call that a suspension of the law. It may be a little bit more complex than that. But there's something similar with those slums, isn't there, uh, in the territories that they, they embody? Mm. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one because I think that's, that's I guess, and that's our similar interest in law. Um, is almost, it's almost a Gambian interest as well, isn't it? Because it's this sort of zone of, of inapplicability, but then it's the most applicable zone <laughs> so it's it's this space where you know um, law doesn't reside but it is law itself mm-hmm. so um, yeah and I, I think I realise that I, you know throughout whatever I, I tend to read I suppose I always try and find this liminality um, which I guess is what critical legal theorists do mm-hmm. to be honest um, but Interestingly, the, the, well, the Burroughs example, and I only really realised through talking to you today, really, was, was that that is a, another example of a, of a zone of where the, the interzone itself was, was sort of this either, uh, it was Tangier, so it was, it was where Burroughs saw it as a, a place where anything could happen. Yeah, you know? maybe, I, and actually, we, maybe I should just. Uh, uh, put that back into context mm-hmm. a little bit. So the interzone is 
these uh, territories that William Burroughs describes in the Naked Lunch, mm -hmm. and it's very much uh, uh, influenced by it's his. Also in the books it, as well. Like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and this yeah, yeah this pr almost preparatory books. Uh, yeah. yeah, but um, but it's uh, it's very much influenced by uh, his life in Tangier in uh, Morocco, in how he would uh, he would um, he would live this uh, the space of. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was the Medina or some, somewhere, but mm. uh, there is this kind of um, uh, interesting look in the fact that there, th the interzone has has its kind of uh, non-fiction almost equivalent as well uh, in, in the place yeah. of Tangier. But um, I'm sorry, that's just to, to re-put back into context, but please tell us more about the interzone and its... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is it's Tangier and it's, it's the international zone as well mm. because he sees it as, as many many nations coming there seemingly and he liked that you know he liked that influence and that buzz I suppose um, it's also actually it's not just Tangier but it's also um, a, a sort of a, as a heroin plateau so it's it's this zone where um, I should really find the quote but it's where everything and nothing happens so but it's also that the point at which he, he's coming out of um, a withdrawal for heroin but that, that's at the point where it's at its most powerful. Yeah. So, um, so it, it's it's kind of this space that's nothingness itself, but it's because it's nothing, it's it's so powerful. So, <clears throat> I guess when you look at um, squats or, or as slums as well. So, what I find really fascinating is is that you have. A squat. Well, let, let's say in the in the in the England and Wales example, um, that you can squat a building uh, that's commercial building now. Uh, previously, you could squat a, a residential building as well, um, and you could do that. It would be a civil wrong, but it wouldn't be a criminal act. Mm -hmm. So we have this. I'm sure people know, but you know, we have this sort of supposed doctrine of squatters' rights. Which means that what I found really fascinating was because any professional squatter that I've ever met or that, you know, that, that I know people do, um, it's, it's, a, it's a quite an organised process. It's not something that happens out of nowhere. And the mm. ones that do happen out of nowhere will be illegal anyway. So <laughs> mm. um, Because they won't be thought out properly and, and, and it would probably be more to do with um, an emergency measure perhaps. Um, However, the, the squats that I'm thinking of in terms of social centres, they tend to be very strategically worked out, and they are they they used this these this body of rights. Well, they're not. It's the Section Six of the Criminal Law Act is something that you would put up on on the door in the uh, UK. In the U, this is only in yeah. England and Wales, not in Scotland. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you'd put that up on the door. Um, and essentially, that would mean that no one, the, the owner cannot enter the property again until the court has removed you. Okay. So, you have, I, I, you have an, it's it's a time element. So, that's, I'd really like to look into that more about the, the role of time and yeah. and not well, space and time is sort of the same thing, I suppose. But there's definitely a temporal element to mm. to, to residing there, the occupation. But the fact is, is that by squatting in the in the England and Wales example. Um, you were actually using law, really. Whilst at the same time, this the law allowed 
it to have some resistant element mm-hmm. within itself, um, which I find fascinating. Again, so it's this very liminal zone, I suppose, where it's it's all or nothing. It's um, but then even more interesting is obviously the change in the law. The law seeks to try and um, get rid of this zone entirely, but then I, I mean I would argue that if you do that, then there's going to be a problem <laughs> because I guess if, if you think of an ex- in a Gambian example or perhaps an example of a constitutional example where you take away a, a sort of the state of exception which is the prerogative power then supposedly that the constitution halts it, it stops so I guess if you apply that to like squatting law um, a, a similar thing may happen I'm not quite sure how that would I think it would just result in law not representative, even being less representative and, and representative, sorry, and, and trying to totalise, mm-hmm. which is what neoliberal law tries to do mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but as we know, it can't totalise. <laughs> well, it, it can never totalise. So, yeah, so I find that quite fascinating and, and I find sort of linking that in, I suppose, and if you take Carl Schmitt's understanding of, of the, the origin of all law coming from the earth itself. So if you, if you the take earth, right? The earth, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the nomos of the earth. Yeah. So if you if you take away that, that element of the law being able to breathe, I suppose, by having some element of resistance inside mm-hmm. of it, then not only are you taking away that stop valve, I suppose, but you're also taking away a very important stop valve which links to possession of land so there's a sort of two levels there mm. um, so yeah I haven't quite worked that one out yet but, <laughs> um, but yeah so I, I think the, the sort of the interzone is another social centre um, I mean I'm, I haven't read it yet but I'm looking into the Aleph which is the the Borges talks about it and, mm. and it's the, the place of all places in the Aleph yeah yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, which would be a similar place, or, or like the temporary autonomous zone, the Hakim Bay's mm. example. Um, the event, I suppose, Badu's event. So it's, mm. it's, I guess they're similar, similar spaces, aren't they, really? Um, or the insurrection. Or, but it's just trying to find where that space is and how law, what that says about law, really, mm. I suppose. And when, when I was hearing you speaking about this... Um the various strategies of, of squatting, let's say. Mm. It, it actually made me think that a, a little bit earlier when I was saying that immanent uh, uh, domain was only a practice, I was maybe a little bit speaking too much from the outside because there is a strategy. Uh, strategies are being um, uh, being used. And uh, one of your examples mm. um, uh, uh, made me think also of this... Um, from what I understand in the Turkish leg- legislation, <laughs> about which my knowledge is very limited, but, Me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, from what I understand, there is a, there is a piece of legislation stipulating that if um, if an let's say an illegally constructed house or shelter or any form of dwelling is being um, spotted by uh, the law enforcement. Um, if the if this dwelling is considered as let's say finished, mm. completed, 
then there needs to be a legal process uh, going on so with uh, various uh, administrative and bureaucratic uh, uh, peregrinations that will involve. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the shelter, the dwelling is considered as uh, in construction, mm-hmm. then there can be an immediate eviction and destruction. So, right. so it did it did trigger some strategical acts, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. which is like to build to build a dwelling overnight, basically. So yeah, that yeah. there is there is no, no time almost time. no risk to be to be spotted. So and and in the time in the time of uh, bureaucratic the, the time of bureaucracy, which we know very well is a very <laughs> slow time. Yeah. Um, the 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 inhabitants of this dwelling uh, could uh, live in it. So mm-hmm. there there is this kind of uh, use of of, uh, of the not so much the ambiguity of the law, but maybe use of of uh, the knowledge of the law very much mm-hmm. to yeah, to, yeah. to 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 be, to build strategies uh, for those practices. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I find that interesting, and and I I feel bad that I was being so binary before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I I um, I think it really depends. I mean, obviously the, there are so many exceptions, you know, to the two instances. But I think squatting is so fascinating because it does, you know, you can have people who are doing it because they may have you know addiction problems or they're coming mm-hmm. they're trying to find literally a shelter over overnight um, or you can you can have a you know a, a strategic move to occupy a space mm-hmm. in order to um, symbolically resist something else so there are many reasons many reasons for squatting um, and mm-hmm. that's why it's you know it's, it's a real shame when <laughs> it gets castigated when it's misunderstood really by you know I won't go into it but um, certain medias <laughs> mm. so um, and it's interesting yeah. to see in the case uh, of Burroughs whether mm. we speak of Burroughs the author or the, mm. the, narr- the narrator yeah of I mean the, the two are, are very he's a fugitive mm. he's going to the interzone because mm. he killed his wife right like he mm. accident- accidentally killed his wife but yeah. he's, uh, he cannot live any longer in the United States so he's fleeing is that right? I'm speaking under your control here. My my uh, last reading of the Naked Lunch was a few years ago. Yeah, I, I believe he, he he definitely went back to the US. Um, and the interesting thing about Burroughs was that yeah he I mean he he was in in life and in and in fiction he he was this fugitive I suppose. Well, mm. yeah, yeah. And what I mean by that is that it was its um, his entrance. To the interzone was made mm. through this interface of uh, having suspended the law for himself, or it's. I think I think to be honest with you, I think it was more to do with with substance okay. misuse. Yeah, mm. so I, th- I think that was more the case. Um, I, although when he he writing itself really took off for him when after the death of his wife, so. Mm. Um, he was already using all sorts of things, um, but then he did say, in order to escape this guilt, I suppose he has to write himself out of it. Okay. So that's what he, what he did. But I suppose the interzone was was a a level of clap, like at the same time as being this sort of escape, but it's also a, le- a level of lucidity, I suppose, or mm-hmm. clarity of something that uh, is about to happen, maybe. Um, but it's also, it's not happened yet, so it's, it's a sort of a zone of 
safety mm-hmm. as well. So, which if you ever read anything, you know, about sort of substance use or anything like that, that tends to be like this sort of comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he is also, he doesn't, yeah, I mean, law is, I mean, I guess, I mean, the reason why I read Burroughs was actually to try and read something completely unrelated to anything to do with my PhD <laughs> um, and to just, you know, read something for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you start to like, try and apply stuff. Um, there is no outside. No. <laughs> and Nathan Moore, who, who has written some wonderful things on, on Burroughs as well about control and, and the, the element of control in his writing... But not just that, it's, it's also about control in, in his... He may seem as though he's out of control, but he's actually mm-hmm. very much in control of, of his use of... or his sort of quite um, bohemian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. his writings about, about uh, drugs is, um, as a commodity is sometimes reaching uh, some level of... Uh, um, of descriptions medicinal. that are very much, yeah. very much uh, uh, worth of uh, Mark's attention. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it's it's pretty incredible how how he, inv- he even goes as far as no longer looking at it in in um, as an anthropocentric uh, interpretation, but as a as a substantial centric mm. uh, interpretation. Mm. The human become only like a a, a vessel of mm. uh, a, a very. Uh, a very docile mm, vessel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but staying with Burroughs is a word we didn't we didn't uh, pronounce yet. Even though I think it's very much your um, how to say your filter of interpretation in uh, in uh, Burroughs. It's uh, the the word of uh, naughtiness. <laughs> can, can you may, can you maybe tell us a little bit about this naughtiness because it's yeah uh, yeah. Um, yeah naughtiness. <laughs> I suppose. Naughtiness. I've I've always, I suppose I've always associated myself as a little bit naughty. Okay. But but my my problem with the the way people, well, the way it's normally written about naughtiness is, is that it's related to sort of sexual naughtiness. Or whereas in actual fact, the naughtiness that I that I sort of relate to would be something that's quite almost. It's not innocent at all, obviously, but it's. Um, uh, it's a mischievousness that doesn't really have to be anything to do with sex or anything like that, mm-hmm. really. Um, so, um, and the way that I tried to to apply it to Burroughs is again that well, naughty would again be this example of, of the nothing, really. So actually, when you look at the etymology of naughtiness, it's, it's a, a naught or, or a, um, I suppose not not I. Um, which would mean a sort of a um, a removal of oneself from from the situation, I suppose. Um, and originally, I sort of looked at naughtiness and how um, law didn't apply to naughtiness. But in actual fact, I think, and the first sort of writing on naughtiness I did was was more to do with its playfulness and. Um, and then when I looked at Burroughs, obviously it all got a little bit dark. Um, and so it's much more about how naughtiness is actually. Um, and if you use sort of a Derridean understanding, I suppose. I was trying to understand how, what 
what naughtiness means in terms of the presence of law. So actually law is very much there, um, but law forgives, I suppose. Um, and then what Derrida would say would be that if an act of forgiving, or forgiveness itself is, is the most unforgivable act. Mm-hmm. Um, so although naughtiness might seem as though it's very innocent, or, 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 or almost illegal mm-hmm. is actually the most legal act. Illegal. <laughs> illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so again, it's this. It's another interzone or another. Yeah. Um, it's what I like to call the, the thickness of the line. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, ju- just to go back to this to this naughtiness, uh, maybe my my own interpretation of, of uh, your use for it is. Uh, very much based also on how um, uh, a locution, a word, can uh, a verbal word can, um, uh, how to say, um, um, swallow a body um, uh, with the law and the norm. Mm. Um, like like that's I think that's something similar to what Althusser described as um, as a, the the police agent that uh, says to you. Hey you there, mm. and this hey you there is englobing you into the low all in a sudden. Right. There's a kind of, a of specification, you mm-hmm. and you wrote you very generously wrote uh, a text for the phenomenalist a while ago, uh, and you I think you did something pretty similar at least in my interpretation, and I'm going to go as far as. Uh, quoting the sentence by heart because it kind of it kind of marked me a bit it was during it was in a con- very specific context in um, in uh, London because you were it was uh, at the very moment that um, the riots the 2011 riots happened mm-hmm. yeah. and you were talking about it and you say you said something like uh, the word chav should never be uttered anymore and I think chav is pretty much uh, similar to this to this naughtiness and like how it englobes mm. a body into a, a very uh, normative category yeah it's, it's, quite, it's, the, it's the other isn't it mm. I suppose yeah and it always comes from the outside mm. yeah and it's uh, yeah, yeah so yeah, does yeah, low has anything true. to do with that or is that more something about the norm because um, in, the, in the case of the policeman it's very clear that it, all in a sudden it, it becomes a matter of law but uh, um with naughtiness, or not was naughty, shav, or any any kind of locution like that that englobes a body from the outside. Um, I would say I would I would always relate it to law. To be honest with you, yeah. so my understanding of, of that's a symptom uh, of legal theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but please, that's why I'm asking yeah. you the question. So. I, and I guess you know, um, law. Yeah. A level of normativity really is, is is depending on how far you're willing to go with it, and that's why legal pluralism is quite handy in that. But it does it does have um, it does have its problems as well um, in terms of its I suppose historical background, where it's come from, an anthropological understanding of law, which is always another the otherness as well, isn't it? So. Um, um, and a state-centric understanding of law, which I still have a... I, I can understand why critical legal theory 
wants to f- keep the state-centred understanding of law, but I I do see like you know calling somebody a chav. Um, that that's that's either an operation of normativity as a result of state. Can you maybe just describe law. what chav uh, relates to in because it's it's a relatively British. Uh, uh, Terminology, so yeah. Um, well, my understanding of it is, is that it, it it's it's very um, it's derogatory. Mm-hmm. I see it as derogatory mm-hmm. um, in that you are basically labeling pretty much the whole the way I, the way I see it anyway. Um, and depending on how somebody looks um, and their background, um, and it tends to be somebody of a working class background. Okay. So. Um, a tr- and a troublemaker, right? That's kind of no. No, I, w- I wouldn't say that. No, no I mean even you know. That's kind of what it implies in in the way it's been used. No, it, it's okay, just <laughs> yeah. Chav, it's it's a yeah. I probably should look it up online really before I start giving definitions <laughs> of it. But um, I suppose it's yeah. It, it's maybe. I don't know, without sounding derogatory as well, is, is if you'd say, oh, they're a bunch of townies or something. Or, okay. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's a way of sort of drawing a boundary, really, isn't mm. it? But I think it's just used... So I haven't heard it used that often these days, but um, it was used much... all the time for a little while. And it okay. would be... Um, of course, as a result of that, it would be linked to troublemakers. Mm. So in a way, I mean, I don't know if you know the story of like the hooligan example so like the it, it might be a, a similar mm-hmm. so that the hooli hands were a and I remember reading this for sociology years ago years ago and um, were a family who were sort of noisy and and um, you know they stayed up late and they played music and this is in London in the 19th century I think um, and anyway as a result of their behavior and their which may or may not have been, you know, um, malevolent. That's where the name hooligan came from. So I suppose this is, in a way, it is linked to troublemaking. Mm-hmm. I suppose the chav idea, but it's the way I see it. It's, it's actually a class issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I get I get quite across when people when people say, "Well, they're just a bunch of chavs." Well, it's like, well, what does that mean? And you're basically saying that they're, they're, they're they're not as good as we are mm-hmm. so that's how I see it um, yeah so yeah I just I, I think it's a horrible word <laughs> um, but some people may disagree so, so the word chaff should never be altered again no <laughs> uh, <laughs> even though <I> just have <laughs> we still have a little bit of, little bit of time maybe we can um, uh, do a, a weird thing in the cartography of our conversation and mm-hmm. go a little bit backwards and uh, go back to this liminal space and uh, uh, the interzones, the thickness of the line. And, mm. uh, uh, I call that the thickness of the line because um, I imagine uh, um, the law as a sort of a diagrammatic construction, mm. and uh, in in um, in the way it incarnates, a, the line of the diagram needs to thicken because there is a, a material dimension that needs to enforce those diagrams. Uh, and uh, the que- the question that remains is uh, what it, what legal system is um, 
uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a legal condition on one side of the line, there's a legal condition on the other side of the line, mm. but what is the legal condition of the thickness of the line? Mm. You're asking me that? Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to work out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's this either it's the total, um, it's where the law itself resides, maybe, or it's not so though, because I, I wonder if it's not precisely where the law is not. Because you, you, okay, I, or, I'm or always having this example, and uh, yeah. uh, I hope that by the time I will release this podcast, it's not been the fifth time that I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about this example. But yeah. uh, in 2011, I believe, there was uh, this group of 20 Eritrean uh, uh, refugees mm. that uh, crossed. Um, Across uh, an important uh, part of uh, North Africa and ended up at the border between Egypt and Israel, mm. and um, they managed to exit Egypt uh, uh, as you can expect. However, not to enter Israel. Mm. So for about a week, they remained prisoner of the thickness of the border yeah. between Egypt and Israel, and. Um, and uh, in a, in a, in the worst condition as possible. Uh, I think they they were served water and that's all. Mm. Uh, one woman miscarried, uh, and um, so it made me think that uh, the the thickness of the line might very well be the space of suspension of the law, but it's also the space of suspension of uh, human a, a human being being uh, the subject of rights. At, um, and maybe since you were evoking Agamben. Yeah. Uh, so the, the very status of bare life. Yeah. So there's nothing worse than to be a uh, detained prisoner within the thickness of the line, mm. even though we are in, uh, let's say, squatting, maybe, for mm. example, residing in the thickness of the line, but in a kind of very voluntary and strategic uh, mm. attitude, whereas uh, being held prisoner within mm. the, this same thickness of the line is pretty much the condition of the of their camp. Yeah, I, I guess on the other, on the flip side there is is that using a Gambon or, or a Schmittian understanding of, of sort of constitution and, and this has been written about many times. So I hope I'm representing it properly. But um, in order for a constitution to function, then there needs to be this thickness of the line. Mm-hmm. So by the very fact that there has been a suspension or the application of rights doesn't exist doesn't exist doesn't apply is the way in which the rest of the constitution operates so it's actually where law resides or how how it functions because of that thickness of the line can, so, can you maybe elaborate a bit more i'll try yeah i'm sorry um, <laughs> well okay well if you take for instance i mean it's been used many many times and so um you take the the camp or you take um Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. as an example. So the way in which you know that there is a clear um, suspension of rights mm-hmm. there, very much so, um, and that is put in place in order for the remainder of the constitution or of the people of the U.S. to be protected. So, as a result of that zone of inapplicability. Then the rest of the, I mean, this is a quite a broad um, 
argument, that, I mean, that, that would be the argument, is, is that this may be where law doesn't apply, but it's law applying that lack of applicability. Mm. It's creating that, that space, and it can only exist as a result of that space. So, in order for the the government, I mean, previously it was the Bush, and now and now it's Obama. For the, in order yeah. for them to um, continue their operations, yeah. there is this. They they obviously need in some way to keep that. Let it be recalled that the Camp Delta was announced to be closed on the very first day of of uh, Barack Obama's mm-hmm. uh, presidency, and mm-hmm. it, as we are speaking, it's still very much operative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I suppose that that that's the paradox of constitutionalism. So, and and I think you were saying you were reading Hans Lindahl and maybe Emilio's constitutionalism. I can't remember how you say mm-hmm. it. Um, and they seems they, to be a very, very appropriate name. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So the paradox of the constitution, yeah. the constitution, is is based on that, I suppose. Okay. And they 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 put together a, a, a collection on that. Well, that made me think about something that we can maybe conclude with, um, uh, which is the um, what you've been evoking a little bit earlier about um, uh, the integration of within a law of its own self-contradiction uh, which I find extremely interesting and uh, I, I kind of uh, provocatively say that I'm, I'm in favor of the second amendment of the bill of, of the US bill of right for this reason which is a provocation because the this this amendment is not clear enough to state that it, this is um, that the right to bear arms is actually uh, a right to insurrection in case of uh, despotism. Mm. Um, it's a shame it's not clear enough. Maybe it should be rewritten in such in, in such a way that it does not concern as much weaponry, but more mm. uh, the, the, the right of insurrection. Mm. Uh, the, the constitution of the First uh, Republic in France in uh, 1793 um, was stating that... Um, was stating that it's not only a right but it's also a duty to to commit insurrection uh, mm. in case of despotism, uh, and I'm I'm really interested to see how um, yeah legal system can uh, maybe acquire more legitimacy if that even makes sense uh, when integrating uh, its own contradiction within itself. Yeah. You, yeah. Maybe maybe you have other examples or other thoughts about that. Um. I mean, yeah, I suppose I, I, I do think of the, the right of resistance example, um, and, and Agamben talks about the right of resistance as well, So, um, which is where, in order for the remainder of the Constitution to function, there must be this, this acceptance of the constituent, so the constituent power. So, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, just something that... Um, has been, has happened recently. I don't know if, but it was um, to do with a planning inquiry in Buckfastly, and um, a couple of people that I know that they were working on this, Isabel and Mathieu, um, and the local community used um, they were they were a third representation, I suppose, between the council and the, the corporation who who was. Um, Applying for planning, um, they were a um, 
according to um, planning rules, they were allowed to represent themselves. So they, in, in this, I suppose in, in that way, I, I saw that as a, as a form of a right of resistance because they were this third element. They were the community mm-hmm. that actually were, were, were take, being taken into consideration. So um, within the planning rules, it was... Yeah, uh, as a result of the, the procedures yeah. of the planning rules. That's quite. I thought that's quite an interesting example of of, um, of, of a, an element of understanding that you, there has to be some inclusion of the extra legal in order for the legal to operate, mm-hmm. I suppose, or in order for it to be demo, or to however you want to understand democracy, but in order for it to be representative or mm-hmm. legitimate, which is which is uh, fundamental, I suppose, because they, since we cannot act outside the laws, that's pretty much the only thing that we can do inside the law to make sure that it is um, that it is uh, maybe faithful to what it was meant to be originally yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right well let's see thank you so much for taking the time thank to you, speak to me